Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. This evening, I'm starting with John Kenny, Executive Vice President of Operations for RealStar. John has built a career in operational assets, be these flexible office space, student accommodation, and most recently built rent. For the RealStar's UK residential portfolio, that's currently £1.5 billion and over 3,500 apartments across 16 properties. But it's part of a much bigger group. RealStar Group is a Canadian investment company with assets of around $9 billion. So, John, thank you very much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me along. So let's get started. I always start the same. How does one, chapter one begin? Um, look, chapter one begins as a young man. Um, and, and just really quickly to clarify, I'm, I'm, I have an Irish accent, but I'm actually born in the UK. So I'm, I'm a Whitechapel boy from the east end of London. Um, and around about um, not long after my 17th birthday, or almost exactly on it, I, I make the decision to come back to the UK alone. And believing I wanted to be uh, an apprentice electrician, actually, which, I mean, is made, it's a slight desperation choice. I mean, it's a way out of kind of very socially challenged West of Ireland for me. Um, and, you know, all of that's a bit fractured at a social and family level. And so the idea that you could have a trade and go elsewhere and build yourself and have this trade to rely upon, you know, was the last thing my dad said to me is just get a skill, go and do that, John, and that skill will look after you forever. And so chapter one really is making that choice. Um, which is, which is a choice about trying to protect my future, but it's not made out of the love of wanting to be an electrician, frankly. And I come and I join the, the London Electricity Board, and I, I'm like every other apprentice trying to survive in London. You know, I, I work in McDonald's on the weekend, and I work in a supermarket in the evening, and I do my apprenticeship stuff during the day, and I'm, and I'm trying to make that work. And, and, and that's tough. I mean, I get to the end of year two, it's, it's not going so well, I'm not really enjoying it. I'm thinking, okay, do I... Do I get excited every time the light turns on? And, and the answer is no. So I don't really have an underlying love of being an electrician. And, and I make a change. I've made a community of friends and I, I, I do two things. I step out of the apprenticeship and into the print world, into the world of News International that printed the Times and the News of the World and all those papers back then. And they just moved to Wapping. They just left Fleet Street under a cloud and they, they, they'd open up in Wapping. It was a very violent, turbulent start to, to how the unions were handled back then. And at the same time, I joined the, the military in my part-time. So I joined the Royal Engineers as a, as a reserve soldier. So I'm kind of now working in a blue-collar production environment uh, to earn my money, and I'm soldiering as much as I could in, in my spare time. And that felt, uh, frankly, much better. But that's me stepping into the world of, and, and a very male-dominated world, right? It was, it was, it was run by blokes, frankly, um, of having to produce stuff in 24-hour shifts, um, and everything had to happen by the end of the day. It was an immediate environment. And, and, I, and I step in there literally onto the shop floor. You know, I'm, I'm working to support the printing press in what's known as the press room, a really dark, hot, dingy environment to work in. And we're, we're cleaning ink and we're supplying paper and we're running the real intake whilst the printers are running the press process. Um, and, I, and, I, and I pick up a supervisory role there that, that quickly somebody says, look, you're young, but we... We, we think you can do this and we, we back you to be able to, to, to manage men in a shift. And I do, and I tune into the leaders there and I, and I listen hard and that works out well. And I go on to be an assistant manager now managing 20 blokes in a shift that's doing a 24 hour, seven day a week operation. Um, and I'm really focusing hard. I mean, I've, somebody's backed me on the notion of leadership. Um, and as a guy who's very dear to me now, it's a guy called Jim Brown, spent a lot of time coaching me on 
dealing primarily with men and, you know, taught me the lessons of, John, get organized quick or you'll suffer. You know, have a really clear leadership mandate when you're managing men in this environment or you'll suffer. Uh, and he spent a lot of time coaching me and, um, and, and that worked. In it. And remember, in that environment, actually, there are more and more of the printing processes are being outsourced. There's this great tension in there. You know, we weren't liked, we weren't appreciated. We had to be very, very resilient. Um, and you developed thick skin, right? And, and you had to produce at the end of every day. And that, that really is kind of foundational for me. Um, I, but I, I carry on. I, I grow into being uh, managing, a, then becoming a manager for a certain part of that environment, which is a mainly around the production process. So now you're managing a uh, hundred now mixed people, um, you know, on a, on a twenty-four hour, seven day a week shift. And I and I'm taking at that stage just about any leadership learning I can find. And whilst we learned functionally on the shop floor about what we were doing, I'm far more interested in notions of leadership. I think, I think that's connected to the bit of Irishness. You know, there's, there's like, can I make something out of myself? Will I be better than I was? Can I continue to be better? And, and for me, leadership was an idea around self-improvement. You know, I could step away from, you know, the things that drove me out of Ireland and made me want to be better in the first place. And so it's the, it's the start of a very early and still, and still living kind of um, lifelong interest in, in leadership and authenticity. I, I, you know, I follow that path. I, I commit to learning at the leadership level and at the functional level, and I end up running part of that operation in London, but eventually grow into a regional manager and a, and a young regional director that's now running operations on behalf of British Gas, London Transport, Whitbread Breweries in, in Manchester, the old Boddington's Brewery and up in Salmsbury and, and, and in Wales. And I've grown up functionally. I'm starting to write bids. I'm structuring contracts. I'm delivering really what was the first iteration of facilities management in the UK, you know, we, we went from doing cleaning to thinking we can do cleaning and security, then it's cleaning security in front of the house, and then that just expanded. The world of FM grew up around us, and I found myself working with the likes of Johnson Controls, who, who really were the pioneer in that world, and, uh, and I learned an awful lot. Again, committing to any learning that was available to me, um, particularly if it was around the, the, the notions of leadership. So, so I learned, you know, regional structure, I learned bid writing. I started to learn the technical elements of FM. And I have kind of this wonderful jump still around notions of leadership, you know, that, that's, that's driven me. And towards the end of that time, it gets interrupted really by illness. Um, you know, I, I, I have two kind of run-ins with, with cancer. The first time, um, quite low level, I, I have testicular cancer, which is quite popular in, in young men, sadly. And that, that's treatable. You know, for me, it was an operation and and... That resolved itself very quickly, uh, and then, but unfortunately, um, six months later, to the day, in a, in a very spooky set of circumstances, I come to find out I've got it a second time because the hospital never spotted it, so somebody else accidentally did. Um, but that triggers a very long interaction with chemotherapy, and I'm in I'm in the hospital then for, for quite some time. So it interrupts the trajectory I was on in the facilities management world. Gives me a little bit of time to think. Um, I was studying for my diploma in company direction at the Institute of Directors at the time, which was, again, part of the previous uh, learning I could access. And I, I kind of continued through my illness. And um, I remember going when I had energy to the IOD to be in the classroom surrounded by people looking at, you know, and I looked at it kind of pretty, pretty different at the time. But there was lots of people from businesses. That, they were running hotels. They were running all kinds of businesses. It was really opening my eyes up to what was possible, you know, kind of for, for me, if I could get this right. So I got, I got very excited about that. 
to some degree helped me see my way through 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 illness. And I, I, you know, I come back from that. I have a very supportive employer. I step right back into my role and I, and I continue to perform. Um, but I suppose it's the start of an itching. You know, it's a leadership itch that thinks, oh, what, what next might be possible? Um, and still a yearning because you think, well, you know, I've done some really good stuff I've achieved, but I can achieve more. And, and was that luck? You know, did, did all just, just, was it happenstance and I got lucky? Um, and there's a little bit, I, I don't know if imposter syndrome is the right word, but there's, there's a little bit of doubt in there. And so you want to push yourself further. And then I, I got introduced to uh, one of the early thinkers in the serviced office world, who was a guy called David Alberto, who was, who was a friend. And, um, you know, he knew me when I was sick. And he said, look, you know, honestly, he said, John, if you make your way out of this, do you want to come and work for me? Because I'm, you know, about to start up this, this adventure called Avanta. Avanta eventually became MWB Business Exchange, which, which at the time was the number two in the UK and eventually in Europe. And it was number two to, to only Regis. And, uh, but David had taken this enormous risk, sold his house and started up his first business center. And I was kind of in awe of that. So when I recovered, I, I, I didn't sell my house, but I did step in and work for him. And what David saw in us was that we were delivering, we were delivering services in the property environment. Okay, we'd, we'd done the front of house stuff. We'd done security. We'd done cleaning. So he recognized and said, John, you're doing all of the things that we do in the serviced office world, but just not the commercial elements. You haven't yet learned how to design and sell an office. Um, and deliver the next level of customer service. And he gives us license to go and do that. He gives us a lot of instruction and a lot of training, but a lot of license to go and create. And for me, that was the most exciting thing ever because A, for the second time, somebody had seen me and backed me and said, I see something in you. And that, I mean, that's just a transformatory moment, you know, when, when, when people do that to you. And it, when, when it happened to me in the production environment, I mean, I was elated. It, it picked me out of a bad place, frankly. And it happened now a second time, you know, because I just recovered from illness. Somebody else has said, I, I see something in you, and away we go. And, you know, the next thing that David did was say, look, I think you really get this leadership and culture bit, you know, help us create that in this business. Because he saw and he really, really impressed on me the importance of the customer. Um, and that becomes front and center for us. We think, okay, who are we selling to? What are our segments? How well do we understand it? What's the funnel? What do they want? And how are we delivering it? And we double down on that. And, and because we're a, a small business, we're repositioning some assets, we're creating some new, we really have to get that right. You know, Regis is a big business at that time. Gainsborough was up and running well. So we're coming out of scratch and there's a lot we have to double down on and focus on. So it's, a, it's an explosive time in terms of learning. You know, I'm... Um, I'm learning how to sell and structured sales. I'm learning the technology that underpins operations. I'm still applying operating and leadership models. And I'm harmonizing businesses, you know, because when you're, when you're repositioning an asset, you're buying a bit of somebody else's business, trying to harmonize it into your own and, and, and make sure that works. That's far trickier than, 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 than people think. So this, I kind, of, I kind of move out of chapter one into chapter two, which is a really exciting world of office, it's a startup. I'm building it, um, and, I, and I've got license for my CEO to go on and do that. And you know, business exchange really takes off. I mean, it, it goes from well, it goes from a serviced office in Bracknell to 49 serviced offices on a pan-European basis. So, John, whilst whilst I've been sort of listening to the to the story so far, I am curious. At the at the peak of MWB, how old are you? Ah, yeah, great question. I'm 27. 
So 27 year old. So 10, so you've had 10, 10 years of working, haven't you? Right. Yeah. Have you exceeded your expectations of the apprentice um, electrician, or did you? <laughs> did you always? I mean, in, in all, and I'd say it good, but I mean, in, in seriousness, in terms of whilst you took on, you know, the the apprenticeship was just it was a, a catalyst, right, for as you described to leave Ireland. Yeah. You know, did you have bigger plans? Did you have bigger ambitions, though? I didn't actually. I'm going to be really honest. I I think when you come out of that part of, of, of socially challenged Ireland, you, and you've got to remember, a lot of Irish people are born with a PhD in guilt, right? So, and, and, and all that comes with it. So there's a bit of a self-worth thing going on back then. And I, and I think each move for me is about challenging that and trying to get better. Um, when I, you know, to your point on the print industry, I was managing men in shifts at 19 years old. You know, some of them were 20 years older than me and, and pretty aggressive about it. So then I, then I felt like I'd made a move. I felt very vulnerable and exposed, but I'd made a move and I, and I could see I was achieving. Then you roll forward to business exchange. Well, I mean, at, 20, at 25, 26, it felt wonderful. You know, we're pan-European. And I'd far exceeded the idea of being an electrician. I, I, knew, I knew then because I could look back and join up the dots. I knew it was the right decision. Um, and yeah, there, was, there wasn't a sense of arrival because actually I, I just wanted the next thing. I just wanted to think, well, what comes now? Because I... I still believed I'd got lucky um, to a point, and I and I thought I don't want to be lucky. I want I don't know it's in me to authentically do this, but I did look over my shoulder and think I've made the right decisions, painful as they were at the time. All right then. So what next? What comes after MWB? So we, I mean, stepping out of MWB, I mean, remember the end of that journey is we we head into nine eleven. That's catastrophic for for business generally, but also the the, the burst of the dot com bubble, which was catastrophic, and that's. The chapter of really learning that you know all of the work you do in building businesses really gets tested when you have to make them survive, and so that that really is a really important chapter for me because it's you you then look back at your work when you're unpicking it and see how much hubris was in there, and you have to painfully pick it out of your operating models, restructure your business, and, and ensure you survive. Which which we did. I mean, remember that's the period where uh, you know Regis got into Chapter Eleven. That's as close as they ever got to, to, to going under, you know, I remember the headline at, at 11p a share, which you, when you calculate that now, so, and, but that's a really kind of cataclysmic period for everyone because we step out of the horrors of 9-11 into the dot-com environment, we're into recession and a different mode in, 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 in my life starts. Um, and I did, you know, the business, business exchange journey comes to an end, we, you know, we managed to step out, you know, successfully and step into, into a new world and, and that new world for me was was purpose built student accommodation, which I had never even heard of. And I, I got a call from a recruiter that knew me and said, "Hey, what about this?" And they explained it. I thought, okay. When, and I remember arranging to to go and have a look, and getting excited about it because I could see that some of the models we'd run previously would apply. And so I thought I could see some common ground. But in terms of selling student and the whole higher education industry, I knew nothing about. And, and remember, you know, I don't. Um, I left school very, very young to help my family, and I didn't. Um, I didn't go to university. So, so this really was uh, a new beginning for me. What, what, what I do is I, I spend some time with a, a small portfolio called Domain. Uh, it was run by Morfield at the time, but and, and the idea of there was to stabilize it operationally, which which we do, give it some process, and and that business is then sold to Liberty Living. Um, who's run by Charles Marshall, who in the student sector is you know, tremendously well known. 
And Charles kind of said, look, you, you know, I, I understand you want to go, but will you, will you stay around for six months and, you know, help me look at this operationally while I really f- double down on the investment bit? And I've got to say, from there, 12 years disappears in the blink of an eye. Charles really sees the opportunity to put retail money to work in student accommodation um, in the UK, which was completely pioneering at the time. Nobody else had done it. I mean, Unite, Unite were up and running, so they were recognised and the model was established. But in the way that Liberty were doing it, uh, nobody had seen. And, and effectively, he saw the opportunity to buy and reposition assets. And, you know, we had some early decisions to make around what was important to us. And I, and I had learned from the serviced office world where we put the customer at the middle of everything we did, that this could apply here too. And, and apply in a way that's, that, that positioned the, the student as a customer. You know, and I, I don't think back then the student was always appreciated that way. And that was part of the problems about building a serious purpose-built student accommodation model. And so we, we'd agreed two things, that the customer was core. We'd, we'd agreed that we would devolve authority and responsibility into the field. So we would not grow the middle of this business, but we would grow our operations in the field. Um, and, and that we would partner with universities as we did it. So, you know, we, we've done enough work to understand the value that having a university partner brought to us, but actually brought to establishing a sector. And you know, remember at the time, if you go back to 2003, people, people said, it's never going to work, John. People will never leave HMOs on the high street and come to purpose-built blocks. Um, well, how wrong they were. I mean, it's the start of a, of a sector now that's hundreds of thousands of units deep. And, and in fact, in many ways, the success of student accommodation is what gives rise to build to rent and it is what gives rise to, to co-living sectors. So it really is the breeding ground for many fantastic things in, in the residential verticals. When I was, um, I was doing a bit of background, a bit of research, I spoke to someone who, who knew you around this time. And interestingly, so let's see if you agree with this. They described this as a as a big career milestone for you. The, the transition from domain to liberty, as and this is, how, this is in, the, in their words, uh, John joined an initially disrupted and disjointed poorly managed operational merger. But John soon rose to the top of that organisation and began to create the UK's most professionally managed provider of PBSA. Wow. Would you wow, agree with that? Um, I don't know. <laughs> there would have to be a lot of hubris to agree with it. I, I, I do. I think we did a great job at Liberty. You know, I really think we got it right. Um, I, I, I think I know the chapter they're referring to because I think when, when those businesses got put together, there was a period of people saying, "Okay, I bought it. Now, now, what on earth do I do?" And, and I recognised it as an opportunity because, again, you know, my, my love in life is leadership. I wanted to bring it to play here. I knew this was about people and how we delivered it. We'd already agreed on the customer, so. I, I, I kind of seized the chair and went in and said, look, why don't we create an event that does this, that gets all these people into the room and we're going to line up our issues and we're going to agree how we tackle them. We're going to agree on a culture and a structure and how we go forward. And and that was the start, really, of, of my knowledge of harmonising businesses. And Why do and you think you did it? I think it... I, I, I think it's the level of leadership. I mean, the opportunity was there and, and nobody had really grabbed it. It was just kind of hanging in the room. And I, you know, it's intolerable for me, the idea that you, that you won't deliver service well and that you, won't, um, that you won't engage people and you won't create good culture and structure. I, I can't really live with it. So I, I find it a bit of an obligation to do it. So, and that's why I did it at the time. I didn't quite understand that it was going to go where it went with liberty. You know, then we were 
4,000 beds, right? And when we got out to nearly 29,000, all told at the end. So nobody really knew how far we would get. But I, I felt it as a leadership challenge, it was my job to create the culture and structure under which that business would thrive. And I was really fortunate because Charles, A, he allowed me to do it. He gave me a lot of space to play. And as a chief and sec, chief exec, he was so emotionally intelligent that, um, you know, his course corrections were with me were just subtle and brilliant. And, you know, and, and, and it really was a, a, a tremendous partnership. But they, and, and I think we sowed then in Liberty very early the importance of people and backing people to learn and to grow and to develop and, and allow them to become the brand message. And so if you interacted with Liberty, you know, if you, if, you were, if you were wondering about our values, they were in what we did and said next, right? It wasn't written on the wall. There was no mission and vision any hanging anywhere. It was what everybody did all of the time and we all signed up to it. And it became this tremendous self-perpetuating thing. And I remember, I mean, we, we actually ran general managers meetings for all of that time, every month. And it, on that room, we put our results on the board. What had we sold? Where was our debt? Where was our customer satisfaction? And at the start, I drove. At the end, the entire team was driving. There was tremendous competition and healthy high performance in that, that people wanted to get better all of the time. Um, and they did it without ever compromising a value. So I, I think that answers your question in part, at least. <laughs> um, uh, my next question then is, it's 12 years. It's 12 years of incredible growth, as you described. Loads of success there. We could spend hours chatting about sort of how yeah. each one of those steps happened. I'm sure, you know, it, uh, clearly it doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. What was the single biggest, greatest challenge, though, for you personally during those 12 years? What, what really stumped you? Yeah, what a great question. I think... It really was the idea of growing a unified liberty. Because if you, if you look at what we did, I mean, we, we bought a portfolio from Unite that was 4,000 beds deep. We bought from University of Birmingham and City University. We bought from Leeds. You know, we, we had amalgamated a portfolio. And the great challenge was always to, to harmonize that under a liberty banner and have it perform that way quite quickly. So actually, actually what you've got to permit yourself to do is allow the culture to continuously evolve and your leadership has to guide that. Um, and I'd love to tell you that's, that's always simple, but actually it isn't because it always involves people and there's always something at stake. And what's at stake for them is, you know, belonging and meaning and work ethic. And so they come invested. Now, in order to harmonize them into the model and get them to perform, you have to be very, very appreciative of that. Listen first, work with them, make, make sure that there's something on offer for everybody. And I think if you look at the whole Liberty journey, that's that's the continuous challenge. Um, I mean, you know, sure, in, in 2008, our world shook. It shook again when fees changed and that involved some restructuring and changes. They, I mean, they were challenging. But if we didn't have the strong foundation that we built, we you know, we, the, the challenge would have been so much harder. I'm not sure if this is this is um, sort of humility or or not. You, you're always talking about about we. Um, mm -hmm. I want to ask, ask a question. Did you ever feel like people would question why you, why either why you stepped into the fore in terms of this leadership role, or why why they should follow you? They might. Yeah, let's yeah, let's sort of let's be brutal. Mm. You don't have a degree. You had a, an electrical mm. and apprenticeship. You'd come up through the ranks in terms of printing facilities, 
operational um, sort of flexible office. Who are you to tell someone who'd, uh, who was charter surveyor, investment, <laughs> banker, who'd got 10 years through sort of student? Did that come up? Um, I, it, that comes up from time to time, you know, and it, let, let's be honest about real estate, right? It is the biggest business in the world, right? If I asked you about the biggest business in the world, you, you'd probably say Apple or Nike or something, right? It's not, it's, it's real estate. It's 250 trillion deep. So therefore it attracts the biggest money and the brightest minds. That's a truism. Um, and I think that, that you've got to recognize that there's hierarchy in there both social and otherwise. And so, you know, you, maybe you, maybe you can, can come from money, maybe you're tremendously well-educated and you think, well, operating something that we do, you know, we're, we're a property investor, we just do this operating bit on the side and, you know, and the jolly good of all those chaps could just do what they're supposed to do. And um, I, I don't know how to answer fully. I mean, I recognize that could be a foil between an investor and an asset manager who wanted something to happen and those that were going to make it happen that wanted to be recognized and valued and 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 I and I and I felt naturally, and perhaps now that you ask me, maybe that's arrogance. I don't know. I felt I could do that, and I and I felt obligated to do, it, and I still do. I, I I and that's a very personal, almost. Now I recognise it as spiritual. I couldn't have told you that back then, but it's a tremendously important thing to do because I in your work life, if you can't bring meaning and you can't bring belonging and all those things that we at a very human level just crave, then. Um, you're just passing time. You're not. You're not really living. And so for me, you know, work-life balance is being who I am at work, uh, and you know, it's the same person I am at home. It's not clocking in at nine and out at five and then saying, "Well, now I can be myself." So I, I, I had a very full-on approach to that. I had some opinions, and I wanted to make them heard, and I, and I backed myself to go and do it. Um, and I, uh, honestly, I, I think also that's at the heart of leadership, right? Is taking accountability and responsibility. And if you see it and you believe you can fix it, you put your hand in the air, you step forward. And it did, and I still do. <laughs> so does that answer that? Yeah, well, I think so. I think so. <laughs> and linked to this, again, something in my research is one of the um, one of the guys I spoke to who's known you for 15, 16 years right. said, John is the single most hungriest person I have met for self-improvement. <laughs> He's got this incredible thirst to constantly improve. Well, where do that comes from? Um, I do think, in part, it's it's where our conversation started. A, a bit of that is is growing up in in a socially challenged environment, right? Because there there are hierarchies at play there, and I think without without getting off the, I mean, this is about real estate careers, but just for one moment, mentioning that growing up in that environment is really tough, and I think it can shape and shake your self belief and self worth and all of those things, and. You know, for me, by my late teens, it was a desire to be out of that environment and, you know, to build, to, to make something out of myself. Because many of the messages I got as a young man is that you aren't something. You know, our Ireland can be a tremendously hierarchical society and you get by based on who you know and what sports you play. So that definitely is a foundation for me to want to improve and keep moving. Not, not so I can prove anybody wrong, but so I can prove myself right. And then the second half of the answer to that is I, I really did fall in love with leadership. And when I say leadership, I don't, I don't just mean management practice, learning of how to do things. I mean the philosophy of leadership. And it's influenced by all kinds of things, not, not least the you know, writings of people like Paulo Coelho and stuff, you know, The Alchemist, which is getting off on a journey, doing the thing in front of you very well and focusing only on that and then knowing that the next thing's going to stack up. And um, so, you know, so I... I, 
I think that that's my commitment. Like now, I'm you know, if I look around my desk here, there's books on authentic leadership by kind of Harvard scholars that I'm still picking my way through. I'm reading Jung's um, Modern Man in Search of a Soul, which is almost impenetrable. And so I just have a hunger to get further into it to to, yeah, to understand myself and the cosmos and, and keep developing. Yeah. So that leads on very nicely uh, on the topic of development. What is next? What's this? What's the next big challenge then? Um, well, as I mentioned earlier, I, I really think that the success of purpose-built student accommodation gave rise to, to some degree, the built-to-rent environment, um, and sometime later, the co-living environment. And so that we, we could see in our last two or three years at Liberty how that was coming along. People were thinking about it. There were, there were no real models, but maybe the first kind of one or two investments. So, and I got approached to go and step into that world. You know, could I help construct a, a platform for then Granger? Um, around its built rent. And, and so that's exciting because I thought, well, I've, you know, if I've mastered PBSA, and I, I felt at the time I had, um, could I see if I can work across verticals? You know, if I know a student well, can I work across pure residential well? And Granger opened up all those avenues for me to go and explore those and know those whilst putting together a platform and, and delivering for them. And also technically, I could see that if you were going to be very successful across the verticals, not only did you, you have to get your delivery model right, but tech was right at the heart of that. And so there was opportunities to think about what kind of tech would be most successful. And would it be best of breed integration of tech technologies on an integration layer, or would it be you know, out into ERV stacks? But and I, and I was slightly inspired by good companies like Whitbread, who've been so brilliant at that. You know, if you looked at what they did with Premier Inn, it was exceptional. I mean, they mixed the physical product and the service delivery with tech almost into the perfect outcome. And I, and I believed then, and I still do now, that that's possible for the real estate verticals. And, and, and Granger gave me that opportunity. Um, and we stepped, you know, there was, there, was, there was some great times putting that together. Um, and then it's interrupted because a uh, kind of great leader I'd known in the US, a guy called Ted Rollins, who built a big portfolio in the US called Campus Crest. He had about 60,000 beds in students that he had taken public and then took private again. You know, he called and said, I, I've got this platform, it's called Vallejo, the, the product is LiveStudent, and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to roll it out across Europe while simultaneously he was working across verticals in the, in, in the US. So he had, a, he had a multifamily product, he had a senior living product, and he had a student product. And, and he said, you know, Johnny, I, I believe the same things. I think we can work across these things effectively. The customer and business journeys are variations on a the theme, and we can build platforms to be successful. And we shared ideology about... Um, how people can be engaged to really be successful in the environment. And, and, and he built a business in the same way. He was an admirer of Liberty and we were an admirer of him. And so I stepped into, into Vallejo uh, with Ted, which, you, you know, in timing-wise, <laughs> wasn't my best timing. I, mean, I think I arrived uh, one week before COVID hit the UK in a meaningful way. So it went from, you know, will we do a turnaround on this business and restructure it? to, well, we really need to do that in a bit of a hurry. Plus, we've got to navigate, you know, what turned out to be two years of COVID. None of us knew how long that would be. Um, and so that's really, that really is the next chapter, and it was, was stepping up as a CEO, you know, realising what my blind spots would be then and partnering up with a really strong CFO, which is a guy called Gabriel Berry, a wonderful guy who came out of UPP, forming a partnership. And the task for us really was to restructure the business. I mean, we were, we were then involved in third-party operations, which are subscale, We'd analyze that and thought, we, we know we can't make this work. We don't doesn't make money at this scale. 
and so divesting from that under under the shadow of COVID was was amazing. I mean, we were we were doing that from home, frankly. Whilst restructuring operations in Iberia, that that was challenging because we couldn't get to Iberia. You know, there was a time flying to and from there was difficult for us. So we were doing that remotely whilst you know helping a really well established Iberian team then bring out the rest of its of its product. Um, and then we were we were building out uh, then our Belfast product, which um, which which had to be seen through. So. For me, the leadership challenge was turn around a business and see it through COVID. Um, and, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because that's the really first time that we can recognize operators doing, doing for me, just a superb job. I mean, it's, it was the housekeepers and the maintenance staff and the managers and the front of house staff who went to work consistently throughout that two-year period and played a pivotal role in not just being with students, but in explaining and guiding them through this period and continuing to deliver services in the front line through a very nervous period. I mean, they obviously not as close as, as staff in the NHS were, but many times they weren't too far behind. And so leadership then was tested in a very different way. And, uh, you know, it, it, it convinced me, I, I guess if I was convinced about the power of people in service in terms of customer delivery, then everything I'd ever believed was, was kind of right in front of my my face. I, I remember actually doing a short talk and putting it on LinkedIn because I just thought that those people needed recognizing at, at that period of time for what they were doing. Because student behavior was, you know, they weren't necessarily believing in everything they heard about COVID. They weren't taming their behaviors. There was a lot of parties and stuff and we were having to get that back under control. Actually, it was a real test of leadership to get in front of each student and talk it through calmly uh, and slowly bring those uh, those positions back under control. So as you know, as a as a chief exec, I felt in that role um, I got tested on just about just about every front. And interesting too, isn't it? Because you know, when you, when when you look at the cycle of events, you go from you know it's a turnaround, it's a pandemic, and now we're eddying up to a super inflationary environment and the threat of re- recession. But always, you look at the role of the operator is always in the front line. They're the ones who manage your gross to net down they're the ones who manage your customer service they're the ones who kind of create the models that allow your business to to survive and thrive so i saw i saw more proof of the the role of leadership in in, in these most recent times so i've got to ask then john given given the introductions flow given that sort of close connection then to, uh, to ted rollins why is this a relatively short period within your career um, well, look, uh, the, the first event to name is that Ted died uh, really unexpectedly in, in the second year of, of my tenure with Vallejo. And look, Ted was leading light for me. I shared so much ideologically and philosophically with, with him. Um, so seeing him go did, did really have an impact. Um, I think the second thing is it changed the um, ownership of the business. And whilst we'd done an awful lot of work, we'd, we'd run alongside some institutional investors who really wanted to take the business forward. And we were really, really quite proud of that believed we, then we would step into a, a next chapter. Actually, uh, the remaining shareholders in the business, um, you know, they chose a different strategy and they said, no, we're really satisfied with what we've got. We'll go at a much slower pace, John. We're going to continue to grow in Iberia, but we'll have a much slower pace in the UK and Ireland. And, and they'd read the market in a slightly different way. And that really, that really speaks to their appetite for, you know, running out and finding land and taking land risk and, and development risk. And so for me, then that's an incomplete journey because I, I really want to get on and work across the verticals, like I said, and I want to, want to get back to scale because that's the real beauty in running mid to big businesses is just watching the whole thing develop and, and the great thing you can create. 
And so for me, there's a bit of soul searching, and I and I and I speak with the, the board for quite a long time. But I made the decision to to step out and step back into an environment where where I can work at scale again. Well, that link of his hanging. Tell us tell us what um uh, what this sort of uh, next move was. <laughs> um, so I have joined uh, Real Star Group, um, it's a fantastic business. I mean, Real Star established in the early '70s in Canada by Jonah Prince, so a family-led business. They did a lot of great work in hospitality and particularly hotels. Um, and then, of course, right across the retail sector or multi, uh, sorry, residential and multifamily sector in Canada. And the, uh, I mean, our current chairman and leader of the business is Ryan Prince. Um, Ryan is obviously Jonah's son. He stepped into the UK. Again, he did some fantastic uh, work around um, you know, the hotel industry and hospitality industry. Did some large-scale hotel stuff, but then did some really, really very cute, super well-designed stuff like the Bankside Hotel. If you've ever seen that, you'll, you'll understand the, the guy's eye for brand and creativity. Um, but while simultaneously he put together a residential portfolio, um, part of that is in student. We have some student assets, and then there's the main brand um, uh, for the built-to-rent sector, which is known as Uncle. And so, you know, 1.5 billion in assets currently, eight that are operating and and seven more coming down the line at speed. And, you know, what's really exciting about that, uh, A, it's it's being able to work across the verticals. And it's B, about people who really understand the value of putting the customer at the middle of it. And understanding that when you do that, that's really what gives rise to brand. And that's that's a kind of wonderful union in, in working with Ryan. And so if you look at what Uncle's up to, I mean, it, it acts in a different way. Look at its customer proposition. Um, you know, it's move in. And if you don't like it within, a, within the first two-week period, you can move out. I mean, no one in the residential sector is making that kind of customer promise. So that's a really unique thing. Um, or other parts of the proposition are, you know, there's a, there's a part called sleep around. So if you don't quite like where you are, then you can move, you know, you can move up or down within the same building or within our portfolio. And again, that's just trying to offer flexibility back to the customer, understanding what they might need and how their lives might change and extending right through to, you know, how are amenities put together? And rather than there being a, an amenity arms race, what's meaningful? You know, what materially adds value to people's lives? And so we, there are some very beautifully designed co-working spaces or gym spaces are put together by a group called Before the Lights. Um, Before the Lights are specialist health and well-being advisors that prepare people for being on TV. So they help us de de design our gym spaces and put our gym programs together. So there's the idea here that what we do actually is curate these environments. We put together experts in the amenity space, allow them to design in our space, and, and, and it's us that deliver that on the day-to-day. -day. And so I'm back. I get to work across the verticals. I get to grow at scale, um, and I get to build a platform that does things that's, that's very, very customer-centric. And of course, UK right now, but um, Europe very much on the horizon. And so, you know, exciting uh, new chapter for me where I get to, I get to, I guess, continue to do what I love and I've learned very well, but to continue growing as a leader. Whilst we were chatting, right at the very start, you said something I thought was really, really interesting. Your dad said, your dad said, uh, go out and get a skill. Yeah. 25 years on, <laughs> uh, what's John Kenny's skill? Uh, I think I I think it's it's leadership. I really think that's what I do. I don't know. You you may you may end this and conclude in a different way, um, but I think that's the the thing I really committed to and read about and learned and doubled down on. And it's different than Dad advised me at the time, but it's it's way more powerful. 
Um, and, you know, dad's advice was lovely because he wanted he never wanted me to be hung out there. You know, he always wanted me to have something to rely on. And I think I think I have got that. And I think it's far more powerful than he or I knew at the time. So his advice was good. Um, it just turned out to be a different skill than we both thought. And what what advice would you give to anyone else who's who's intrigued by that concept? How what's the first step on improving their leadership skills? I think it's, the, you know, it, it can be a little bit cliche to say that attitude is more important than ability, but I, I firmly believe that. If you if you look around our sectors now, um, you know, there are people who have come through the Liberty Stable or the Business Exchange Stable that are at the absolute top. You know, they're leading big private equity investment houses on the student side, or they're leading very big, I mean, the guys at the top of the office group came through at ground level on Business Exchange, right? One of those guys was the business development manager. So what each of them had was a commitment to do what was in front of them really well and you know, commit to the idea of serving customers, of being authentic and pure operators and scaling up around that. So really understanding your customers. So um, I'm going to answer it that way because I, if I think I, when I look back across the things I've done, what I did every time was do what was in front of me really well, commit to my learning, get to the next step, and repeat that over and over again. And, and, and actually that, that adds up, in my case, it adds up to a wonderful journey. Um, and I think for some of the most successful people in those sectors, it adds up to the same for them also. Right, John, last question. For someone who has been at the very, very top of several different asset classes, which is so rare, you know, what can those guys listening now, what can they learn from your experience? If, if they genuinely have an ambition to be a leader within their field? Um, I, I, the first thing I want to say is that traditionally in real estate, there's people see a very hierarchical route to the top. And that is, you know, you, you, you want to get off and get into property management and then you want to be a surveyor or maybe you want to do RICs or get up to asset management level um, and then from asset level, asset level into investment management. And that's the traditional route to be in, in the C-suite if that's where you want to go. I think there's an equal route that's been demonstrated over the student and built-to-rent sectors where you can see that, you know, particularly operators, experientially drawn people can find their, find their way too. So, you know, it is, it is completely viable to understand how to run and operate property management to get off and do your built-to-rent qualifications or your ARLA. Um, and then as an operator to step into regional management and from regional management to ops director or lettings director, and then continuing your learning, take a route up to asset manager and investment manager into the top. So I think there are as many COOs that have stepped into the CEO role now as there are traditional CEOs that come through an investment or, or a finance background. So I, I think the real strong point about the real estate market is if you want to go to the top, if you want that kind of success, you can find your way um, to it from just about anywhere. Um, and remember what I said earlier, like there's there are people now leading uh, investment teams, leading technology teams, leading operating teams that were that were operating at um, housekeeper level, that were operating at general manager level in many different businesses, and they've all found their way to, to the top. And I think that's I think that's worth recognizing. It's not just a hierarchical route. Well, John, we've got to wrap up, mate. But thank you so much for for sharing not only the story, but some really, really good quality learnings and insight into how people can genuinely sort of transform their career. So I, I can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you also. I really enjoyed it. So thanks very much. 